You're listening to the V Fox and B Frank show. We have a lot of football to talk about this week, but to change things up to start, we had Roddy Gaines on, legendary Hall of Fame swimmer, as our guest this week. Um, great conversation with him about the Olympics or lack thereof this year. Um, kind of what he's been up to over the last couple months with the coronavirus and uh, other fun stuff. So start off with that and we will see you on the other side. We now welcome on a very special guest, three-time Olympic gold medalist, U.S. Olympic and International Swimming Hall of Famer. It is Rowdy Gaines. Rowdy, thank you for coming on. Thank you, man. Uh, Good to be on with you guys. So right now in September 2020, we should be talking about all of the awesome performances we just witnessed at the Olympics. <laughs> Unfortunately, we can't do that for another year because of coronavirus. Um, yeah. And I, I imagine that's, that's difficult for a lot of the athletes. How, how have you kind of noticed how athletes are handling this, especially mentally? Cause I imagine, you know, preparing for the last four years or even longer than that um, for this moment, the adrenaline starting to get up there and then you have to wait another year to, to do it all over again. You are exactly right. I mean, it, it you have to remember that there's this huge tunnel vision that the athletes really start preparing the day Rio ended four years ago. And it's all of a sudden like zeroing in by the time they get what, six months out, they are, they, they are accounting for every single second of the day. That's how uh, intense it gets because we don't have a world series or super bowl. We have the, you know, it's the Olympics. It's every four years. That's our glory. That's our pinnacle. And you know, for that to be just completely swept away, it, you know, it, it's a lot harder mentally than it is physically. Um, and I certainly can empathize with them because the same thing happened to me in a different way, obviously, when now we're talking life and death. And for me, it was a matter of a career, but the same thing happened to me in 1980. So mm-hmm. I can certainly relate to them. Yeah. And obviously we've got hopefully 2021 to look forward to. But uh, this, yeah. you know, coronavirus has obviously caused issues, not just at the Olympic level, but we're talking college and on down through high school and local pools, everything closed and shut down. I mean, numerous schools have already cut their programs. What, uh, in your mind, do you see as like the, the biggest hurdle in our way of maybe getting back to the pools or what should we be doing to get ourselves back in and, you know, as, as the summer's closing up here? Well, for, uh, on the international side with our, our hopeful Olympian, Olympic hopefuls anyway, you know, I think for the most part, they're back in the water. Um, you know, when I, when I went through the boycott of 1980, uh, you, you have these natural emotions come out, the, the, the emotions of denial and, and anger and then grief. And then there's an acceptance and then there's motivation, and that's sort of where everybody's at right now. You're talking about the pools opening again, and that's that's the key for us. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm part of an, an aquatics coalition. It's you know it's led by USA Swimming, our governing body, and all we're trying to say uh, to and, and this is mainly to the you know the, to the public officials and the policymakers. Hey, we are trying to prioritize opening pools specifically for instructional purpose-driven aquatics, which which, which basically means you know, swim lessons, swim team, competitive sports, competitive aquatics. We're not, we're not advocating to, you know, swinging the gates open and opening up to large crowds. We're just trying to get our pools open. And, and we did a pretty good job in doing that in the summer. But as we move into the fall, 
a lot of those outdoor pools, which was easy to get into, mm-hmm. are are closing. And you know, you, swimming is a year-round sport, and and it's it's tougher and tougher. But you basically have athletes that are some of the best in shape, healthy people on the planet, bathed in chlorine. Right. And you know, the CDC has literally specifically said COVID is not transmitted via chlorinated water. So we're just trying to educate people. That's that's the only thing. That's the bottom line is they just don't know, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, I know they're slammed. Um, but uh, we're just trying to, to try to get on their plate to say, hey, listen, guys, we know how to do this. We We have a comprehensive plan that we have put together. And I say we I'm talking about you know, 30, 40 different water safety organizations across the country, competitive water sports, four Olympic governing bodies, et cetera, et cetera. And we know how to do it. We know how to do it right, where we will do it as safely as possible. And I, I think that purpose-driven part is is really the key point. Um, I kept seeing that come up as I read more and more about this coalition, because um, I, I think mm-hmm. one of the challenges right now has to be for a lot of, you know, high school and younger swimmers who might be at risk of falling through the cracks with, you know, in-person recruiting being limited till 2021 and not everyone having easy access to a pool. Like, is that, mm-hmm. are those kind of the, the people that are trying to, to help out the most with this? Absolutely. I'll give you an example. So I, I'm from Orlando, Florida. Um, and I work, I used to work, it basically doesn't exist anymore, but I used to work for the YMCA down there in central Florida. We had 22 Y's and one of our biggest Y's was a 50 meter pool. We had four different pools and every afternoon guys, there would be three or 400 kids, um, in our facility training in four different aquatic sports, swimming, water polo, synchronized swimming and diving. Mm -hmm. That's all gone. That pool has still not opened. And the point is, getting back to your question, was where are those kids going? Oh, uh, most of those kids have nowhere else to go. Mm-hmm. There aren't other pools that can accommodate that big a team. They, we just don't have them, and it, it 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 it's devastating because the problem is a lot of those kids will be redirected to other sports. Many of them will might be able to find other swim teams, but a lot are going to just go by the wayside and start to drift. And some are going to get in trouble and it just opens up a whole can of worms. And, you know, we've, we've always said, you know, exercise, but the CDC again says exercise reduces that risk. So for the mental and physical part combined, it is devastating. It breaks my heart to know that pools and we're just one of thousands across the country that aren't open that aren't giving our kids a chance um, to be able to get back in the water. And I'm not even talking about the economic devastation or more importantly, mm-hmm. the drowning statistics, the learn to swim programs that are also shut down. Drowning is the number one cause of death in children four and under. It's number one. And a lot of those swim schools are not opening. Um, and, you know, that means we are going to have more children drowning uh, every year. There's about a thousand that drown every year. And the biggest reason they drown is because they haven't taken swim lessons. It's it's a great purpose-driven organization and, and coalition, like we mentioned. And obviously, I did not know that fact about drowning. And it's extremely important that we get this information out there. So we will definitely link out to the uh, Aquatics Coalition website and any other ways that people can get involved or help out. 
Well, I mean, a, a lot of it is just getting to your your local officials and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, write letters. And, yeah, I mean, listen, I, I get it. And when, you, when you think about the, the, the mayor of Washington, D.C., for example, the, the, the D.C. has shut down their pools all year long. And I imagine that she is, is uh, slammed with so many different entities coming to her saying, you have to open this, you have to open that. Right. Um, and, and, and I understand that part of things. I, I just want to make sure she has the information before her so she can know all the facts. Because if she knew the facts, I guarantee you she would open those pools. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what I'm saying is people need to make those public policymakers aware of the facts. That's, that's what the coalition has basically been put together to do. I mean, you're talking about Red Cross, YMCA. We have a, we have a, a woman on our, on our coalition. Her name's Tara Kirk. She was an Olympian, um, swam in the Olympics in 2004. And now she's a virologist for, for Johns Hopkins, for crying out loud. She's one of the brightest people in the world on mm-hmm. this subject. And she says, it's okay to go back to swimming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so it, it, I'm just some dummy that, that kind of represents the coalition, but there are a lot of smart people in that coalition. And so I would just say, you know, uh, as much as possible, if you believe or if you have a child that swims or if you have a child that you want to get into swimming lessons, um, write to those people, get on the phone, call your local representatives and uh, go to the go to usaswimming.org. It'll have all the information on the Aquatics Coalition. You can Google Aquatics Coalition mm-hmm. and it'll come up on the website and, and it'll tell you ways to get involved. Awesome. That's that's great information and, and absolutely a worthy cause. Uh, changing gears a little bit. Um, we we do cover college sports extensively. I know mm-hmm. you had a phenomenal career at Auburn. Um, mm-hmm. I, I was kind of curious in your estimation, like obviously the ultimate goal is Olympics, world championships. How how important do you see the role of competing in the NCAA in an athlete's development? Because I know um, I went to Indiana with Lily King, and I see you know what a what an absolute star she's become, uh, both here and on the international level. Um, what what kind of process do you do you see that playing in in your development and kind of any internationally renowned swimmer? Oh, Indiana. It might be the most successful program in history. Uh, Texas would have a, a strong. I was hoping you'd say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but Indiana has had. I mean, obviously, dating back to Doc Councilman, who's right. probably the the greatest swim coach in history, and Mark Spitz in those days. And now, currently, I think Indiana has a great chance of putting at least five or six kids on the Olympic team next summer. So they they have been they have done a great job. Ray Lewis and and that whole program is amazing. I I think so. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you this. So. USA Swimming has been number one in the world of swimming for 64 straight years. The last time we were not number one in the world was 1956. So my point is, is we have had tremendous success at the international level every single year, not just the Olympic year. And people ask me why. Well, one of the reasons, obviously, is our our great club system. We have almost 4,000 clubs across the country and Mm -hmm. everything from the grassroots and up. It's great. But another major reason is our collegiate success. No other country in the world has the college system that we do. And, and, it, and it's literally this breeding ground to put kids on the Olympic team. And, uh, and if that starts to go away, and 
it's being chipped away a lot right now, obviously, then, you know, it's our our country is going to suffer long term when it comes to Olympic performances. Now, you may say, well, what's the big deal about that? What's the big deal about cutting swimming or gymnastics or wrestling? Uh, well, I say the fact that most swim p- programs, um, if you look at the athletes, they're the smartest athletes on campus. I think we were second or third overall next to, I think, gymnastics uh, when it came to GPA on campuses. Mm-hmm. And you have to remember, these people go, most swimmers also go on to have incredible business career. So they give back to the university. So I think it's a very short-term vision um, when you look at cutting these types of programs and they don't look at the long-term look of what, not just swimming, but a lot of those Olympic sports provide to those universities. I think you touched on an important point too of the fact that it's not just, you know, for everyone, it doesn't turn into an Olympic career or an international swim career, but they are there to get an education and they get that education and then have flourishing careers in other aspects. You've obviously had a flourishing career as an announcer. You've, we, we were joking around beforehand. You've been the voice of swimming basically our entire lives. <laughs> so every time I think or hear of uh, anything related to swimming, I hear your voice in the back of my head. So with that all said, there have been numerous great races that you've been able to call, but what is maybe the most exciting or memorable one that you've been, ever been on the call for? Well, that's easy for me. I mean, that, that's an easy answer because there's only one race that really is head and shoulders. I mean, I've called, uh, this will be my eighth Olympic Games next summer, so I've called every single one of Michael Phelps's race. And, I've, and mm-hmm. really, we are in the golden era of swimming. It's not just Michael, but, you know, right. obviously Katie Ledecky and Missy Franklin and soon-to-be Kayla Dressel. And so we have a lot of amazing athletes out there. But but the 400-meter freestyle relay in the Beijing um, Olympic Games in 2008, no yep. doubt about it, the greatest yep. race in history. I watched that I clip mean, you only have probably to Google once it. a month. Yeah, 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 exactly, <laughs> exactly. All I got to do is watch that clip, man. And, and, but, but watch the clip and then know the backstory. I mean, the clip is one thing, but if you know the backstory of this is Jason Lezak anchoring that leg, by yeah. the way. And here's a guy that's been on two relay, two Olympic relays in the past that have both lost. Um, basically a journeyman sprinter, great sprinter for the United States, but never one that was top of the world individually. Um, he was anchoring against the guy that had the world record from France. Right. And the French had all week been saying how they were going to smash the Americans. Mm-hmm. And he goes to fastest split in history. Nobody's ever been faster still 12 years later than Jason Lezak. And he never went close to that time ever again. So if you think about that race and everything that was put together behind it, it, it really is just, uh, it was a magical race. That was actually going to be my follow-up of like, what, what was the most impressive part of that race? Just hoping to get the Jason Lezak talk, but I mean, 4606, yeah. I believe was the split. Yeah. And that yeah. is just yeah. flying. Yeah. And again, it, it's, it's the 12 years. We went through the high-tech suit here. I don't know if a lot of people remember, right. but in 2009, especially we wore those full body suits, the laser and suit. they, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, they really just, and I, I went to the world championships to broadcast that. And there were 42 world records broken at the world championships in 2009, Jeez. mostly in that suit. Yeah. And normally when you go to a world or Olympics, you might get three to six world records. So it was just ridiculous. But my point in telling you that is his split is still the fastest, even through 2009. That's right. what makes it so memorable. So anyway, it's uh, it was a cool thing. 
Yeah, I mean, you you captured it. I think a lot of the focus in that was on Phelps, but Lezak, the bounce back story, and just a superhuman performance was... It was superhuman, and that's a good point about Phelps because that was, I think, his third event and on his eight gold medal uh, right. tour uh, of those games. And, and just think, if they had won the silver medal, seven golds and one silver just doesn't have quite the same ring. It's still obviously amazing, <laughs> but it doesn't have quite the same ring as eight gold medals. No, it does not. And yeah, like Brian said, you are, you are the voice of Olympic swimming to us. Um, I Swimming is neither of our first sports, but I can tell you honestly, it is one of our favorite sports to watch every summer games. And you are a big part of that. It's just the storylines and the drama that, that come out of it every single time are just so enthralling. Yeah. The Olympics is, is something special. And I really believe that we're going to have an Olympic games next summer and I really believe that it will be the the greatest Olympic Games in my lifetime anyway. Um, I, 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 I honestly believe that. I have no knowledge of that. I have no inkling, have any idea whether it's actually going to happen or not. But I believe it will be. And I think it's the first time that the world will be able to come together, um, you know. Um, and uh, I think it's going to happen. And I think it'll be very special. I really hope so yeah. because we missed it this summer. That is That is for sure. I know. I did too. Yeah, I think the the extra year of waiting will make it just that much sweeter next year. Um, Or at least that's what I'm telling myself. (laughs) That's right. We need to all tell ourselves that. (laughs) But uh, Rowdy, this has been a ton of fun. We really appreciate the time. Um, We will, like I said, we'll we'll share some links on the Aquatics Coalition. And we are looking forward to hearing your voice again next summer at the uh, 2021 Olympics. I sure appreciate it, guys. Thank you so much for having me on. Have a great day, okay? We are back. Um, one of the nicest guys I've ever had the pleasure of talking to. Um, yeah, like even before we started, you know, obviously we, we wanted to be cognizant of the time he gave us, but he was like, how long do you guys need? <laughs> you know, selfishly, I was going to be like, well, let's, let's stretch this bad boy out. Let's talk as long as we can. But obviously, you know, you, you want to be respectful of uh, the time he's given up. Still a busy schedule despite everything. And uh, if I may go on a, a bit of a soliloquy or diatribe, whichever word you prefer, when we first started the site, um, it was summer of 2016. I'm sorry, April 2016, like right before we graduated from school. And uh, the Olympics were coming that summer in Rio. And one of, like, that was one of the big things that I was able to write about every single day. And basically since then, uh, I mean, I've been a fan for a while, but since then it was like a a goal to interview him. And the fact that this opportunity came up and we got to actually do it was unbelievable. Yeah, and he's, uh, even without the Olympics this year, still staying very busy with USA Swimming, um, the Aquatics Coalition, as you talked about. Um, and just would like to add, there was zero coercion from me sure. uh, for him to say that Indiana was the best swimming program. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just totally natural. Uh, no right. one, nothing was prompted there. Had to mention that. Um, yeah, best at swimming, best at soccer. Basketball is a work in progress, but we got there. Soon to be Rose Bowl um, champs. Yeah. So that's something to look forward to. Yep. Um, although Marcelino Ball is now out for the year, which is a real kick in the nads. Um, but we will soldier on. Um, another great week of college football in the books. SEC football kicked off. Um, 
who is your big winner of the week? I mean, can it be anyone other than Mississippi State? It cannot. KJ Costello threw for about a million yards. I think it was 623 was the final number. 36 of 60, five touchdowns. He did have two interceptions. We were curious how Mike Leach would use Kylan Hill, and it is very apparent that he will use him as a pass-catching running back. Eight grabs, 158 yards, and a touchdown, including 75-yard reception. Um, this game told me a lot more about Mississippi State than it did LSU, in my opinion. Like this, we this is where we usually differ. It's a game like this. Maybe I'd say LSU was least impressive, but I think it just showed way more about Mississippi State. I think the number six rating ranking was kind of unfair to LSU, especially given just everything they lost um, and and having a new quarterback come in. It's most apparent in the run game where they really couldn't get anything going on the ground. And Mississippi State's defense is good, not great. It's going to be obviously the offense. It's Mike Leach. It's going to be the offense that carries them to uh, some of these wins. But they were very exciting and very fun to watch. Yeah, I, I was impressed by Mississippi State. They were my big winner as well. Uh, it, it's hard to have any other reaction when – your first game in the SEC, Mike Leach, a lot of people asking questions about how effective the air raid's going to be. KJ Costello goes out and sets an SEC single-game passing record, smashing the old record by nearly 100 yards. And you're right. It was Kylan Hill still fairly lightly used in the run game, only seven carries, still nearly five yards a carry. Not bad, but getting him involved in the, the backfield, out of the backfield as a receiver – he had the most catches out of anyone on Mississippi State, so he is still going to factor into this offense very heavily. And if you're LSU, obviously Derek Stingley not being there hurt you. Um, but we, we focus so much on all the changes with the offense. No Joe Burrow, no Joe Brady, but it's a new defensive system too. Bo Pelini coming in, Dave Aranda's gone, and it very much looks like a work in progress. They certainly made enough plays offensively Miles um, Brennan had his moments, wasn't always the cleanest performance, but Taren Marshall, Terrence Marshall made some plays, but the, the defense here clearly let them down, but it's, I mean, as good a debut as you can hope for if you're Mike Leach. And they forced four turnovers and they just still couldn't get it going. Like, right. it, you know, Derek Stingley being out obviously matters. As I've said before, I think he's the best defensive back in the entire country. How far does that take you? I don't think it really cuts into 623 yards of passing offense. I, like, I feel, still think K.J. Costello sets a passing record with whether Stingley's on the field or not. So uh, it, it is certainly worrisome for LSU defensively just getting thrashed like that in the opener at home. Uh, the positives, I would agree. I think Miles Brennan looked capable. He didn't, look, uh, he didn't look shy of the moment. He looked like he was comfortable for the most part. Obviously, two interceptions weren't great, but still, you know, first true start, 345 yards, three touchdowns. With basically no true number one receiver, obviously Terrace Marshall steps up and, and looks very much like he will be that next great LSU wide receiver. Um, so there are weapons, and he's got options. It's just figuring out the run game and setting, settling the defense in for LSU. Yeah, and Gilbert, a strong target at tight end, too, for LSU. Um, but, yeah, it's like Coach O came out right after the game and said, like, if this is how we're going to play, like, it, it seems like we can't stick with anybody man-to-man. -man. So, even with Stingley back, they might switch over to playing a lot more zone. It'll be interesting to see kind of what Polini cooks up because, for him, this was a, 
a pretty challenging debut. Yeah, definitely uh, two, two opposite sides of the coin for uh, two, two debuts here. Uh, next up, I got to shout out Cincinnati, especially their defense. Uh, Army got a defensive touchdown immediately, and then pretty much nothing, nothing the rest of the way. Um, Cincinnati holding Army's offense to just three points, only 182 yards rushing, which, as we've said, Army is built around that rushing attack. They, they did have to go to the air a lot more in this game um, to a, a pretty ineffective passing attack as well, but very impressed by, by Cincinnati's defense and I would say pretty clearly a playoff contender. At this point, yeah, I, th- I think it goes into uh, a couple of things that we'll get into a bit later. I don't know the last time Army – has Army ever thrown the ball 21 times? I can't remember. I, I genuinely don't know. Uh, Christian Anderson didn't have a great game. They just really couldn't get anything going. Um, and that, that's a huge credit to the Cincinnati defense because, like we said, you know what Army is going to run. You know what Navy is going to run. It's the triple option, and you can prep for it all week. But until you get into game action, you don't really understand it. And Cincinnati was able to adjust very quickly. Um, really made Army's offense uncomfortable and came up with the big plays when they needed it. Army, again, like we said, was going to be aggressive, and they certainly were at points offensively, but they just could not get it done. Three of 13 on third down, 0 for 2 on fourth, and that interception they threw was an absolute backbreaker. They get, they force a turnover and then immediately give the ball back, and that seemed to basically end the game. And another year, another chance for Army to win a big road game, and they fall short. Yeah, and we're kind of getting to the point in the season where at least non-SEC teams, everybody's played a few games, forcing us to recalibrate expectations, specifically in this game for Army. Very impressive the first couple weeks we thought against Middle Tennessee, Louisiana Monroe. The luster fades a little bit when you see what an egg Louisiana Monroe laid subsequently, getting blown out by Utah. They're the worst team in college football, and it's not even close which is, uh, yeah, troubling for the troops. But, I mean, despite how dominant Cincinnati was at times defensively, still able to keep this respectable scoreline, like, it ended up just being a push. So, to take nothing away from Army, but it was a, uh, it was a very defensive performance from the Bearcats. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll also throw out that I was impressed with Army's defense. I mean, Desmond Ritter did not yeah. look good. He did not look comfortable. They kept this team in the game the entire way through. Like th- there were very few points where I, it was Army's done. Obviously, I think that late interception by Anderson, I think it was the third quarter. I can't remember exactly when, but the interception by Anderson kind of turned the tides to where you're like, okay, Army really needs to get something going offensively or it's going to be over. Um, but the defense kept coming up with big plays when they needed to. So credit to the Army defense. That's what I mean. Through three weeks, you got to say that's their strength. I can't, I can't lean on the offense at this point. The defense, you know what you're going to get at least. Yeah. Yeah, Cincinnati's no, no slouch offensively, so that is a good performance, albeit we're, uh, we're scoring moral victories at this point. But that, that is at least something nice to say. So I'll take that. Um, on the other side of the coin, some pretty impressive uh, offensive performances elsewhere. Got to shout out Kyle Pitts out of Florida, four touchdowns. Yeah. And no one will confuse Ole Miss with a good defensive football team, but 
your Dan Mullen, Kyle Trask scene, that offense in the first game of the season, like Florida should be thinking big. I agree completely. I thought Kyle Trask looked incredible throughout the game. I even made a comment at some point in the first quarter, I think, when they started splitting snaps with Emory Jones. Like, why are we doing this? Kyle Trask shreds the Ole Miss defense. Emory Jones comes out there, throws a pick. They get him back out so that he can, you know, get his feet back in the game and, you know, not sit on the sideline and dwell on that. And I think he played maybe five more snaps before Kyle Trask went back in. 30 of 42, 416 yards, six touchdowns, just absolutely dominant. I mean, Kyle Pitts is like the ultimate red zone target at this point. He seems to just dominate coverage no matter what they throw at him. And Trask has quickly shown that he is ready for the spotlight. Yeah. I mean, through a week, I think it's, uh, it's Trask and – in the air raid, it's KJ Costello. He's uh, battling it out for the coveted title of best quarterback in the SEC. Um, I'll, gotta gotta shout out the U again. How about that? Fifty-two ten for Florida State. Uh, the the thing that they have been missing the last couple of years, not unlike a school like LSU before Joe Burrow, is a consistently good quarterback. Um, always had pretty solid defense, but De'Ara King, another strong performance. They have a good supporting cast around him, as we've discussed. And, I mean, at this point, we know Florida State is not a good football team, but the, the demolition to the extent that Miami put down on them is, uh, is still pretty impressive. Yeah, I mean, De'Ara King is De'Ara King. Like, this is part of the reason, in my opinion, why Dana Holgerson left to go to Houston was to coach De'Ara King, obviously – he gets hurt and then transfers, uh, and now Holgerson is left without him. But he fits this Mi- – like, the Miami offense has morphed around him, and it fits perfectly because they've got so many playmakers. Um, it just seems to be a match made in heaven, and he does it both with his arm and his leg, and I think that's what they've been missing for a while. Yeah, um... Brief tangent, is Houston ever going to play a game this year? Probably not at this rate. Like, <laughs> they they've had, had the worst luck. three or four games canceled already. Yeah. They had um, two so in one week. Undefeated, though. So, yeah. got to keep them in the playoff picture. Till Shout out Coach Dana. Uh, I've got one more winner. I got to uh, – I have to shout out Pitt's defense again. Uh, we, we talked about what a juggernaut Louisville can be offensively. They shut down Michaela Cunningham, seven sacks, only 103 yards through the air and three interceptions. Um, I mean, the, the offense with Kenny Pickett threw a couple touchdowns, but clearly that is still very much a work in progress. But as we said, it's an Ardizzi team built around defense, and they have been uh, pretty dominant through the first three weeks. Yeah, uh, Cunningham did not look good. Obviously went out with the injury, so we hope he's okay. Like, Hawkins had a 75-yard touchdown run and ran 12 more times for three total yards. So the pit defense dug in, did its job. The offense does not look great. Um, but honestly, is Pitt really going to come up against that many more 
tough teams like Miami might cause them problems, but the defense, like that'll be a fun one to watch because it's going to be strength on strength. Notre Dame will certainly cause some problems and then Clemson to close the year. But at that point season's either over or they've got everything to play for. So you kind of throw everything out at that point. Um, I was impressed with Pitt. I mean, they scored 20 points in the first half. It was 2017. I did not expect to see that score line that we saw a six point second half. And that's where, that's where things felt to come back down to earth. Yeah. Um, I mean, Louisville is one of the, the better offenses in the ACC. Um, really the only other one you could maybe throw in there that probably not even going to see is uh, UNC at Sam Howell, but yeah, it's uh, it, it's not a team that is going to get a lot of style points offensively, but I don't, I don't think anyone in that program would be complaining so far. Um, it's, this is working so far. It's going to be ugly each and every week. And you said like 20 points and a half is going to be considered an outburst. And that was uh, yeah. refreshing to see that it quickly corrected itself. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's a defense first team. And I don't know that out, outside of places like Virginia Tech, Miami, I don't know if that's frequently the case in the ACC. So it's taken a little bit of time, but I, I think this is probably one of uh, Narduzzi's better teams that he's had. Absolutely. I mean, even just having Kenny Pickett, whether or not the offense actually does anything, though, that elevates it at least roster talent-wise to the best team I think we've seen with him. Yeah, it, it's better than just having a bum out there. I will I'll agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, got any other winners? I have two others. Uh, Auburn. Got to shout out my guys. I was kind of impressed with Bo Nix. I thought he looked much improved. He went up against a good Kentucky defense, three touchdown passes, two of which were absolute beauties. Uh, 34 yards rushing. The run game is not great for Auburn so far. Um, that's something Gus will have to figure out. But the passing game actually looked good. The defense still looks really good. They shut down. Kentucky's offense pretty well outside of that first quarter and uh they forced a couple turnovers I believe where's the number three yeah they forced three turnovers and I I liked Auburn I thought they looked pretty good yeah Kentucky struck first and then that was pretty much it for most of the day um I thought Bo Nix was impressive as well the connection with Seth Williams was very effective um he, he mossed Kentucky for one of his yes. touchdowns but um, yeah, I, I thought Auburn out of, you know, the, the top tier teams in the SEC outside of maybe Florida, I think Auburn's right there as uh, being the most impressive. Bama kind of didn't really go full throttle against Mizzou. They could have run up the score a little bit more. Um, didn't wish they had. Georgia certainly struggled um, and still somehow found a way to cover against Arkansas. But, and I mean, We'll talk about A and M, but and and LSU struggled. So yeah, yeah. I mean, Auburn was uh, got a convincing win over a quality opponent. That's really all you can ask for week one. And and Bo Nix, like you said, did look like he has made progress over the off season. So that is certainly an encouraging sign. Yeah, it, and it was absolutely one of those games like we talked about last week, uh, previewing this, where if he's not on, this is going to be a tight game to the end. And because he played well, he was able to uh, give his team some separation and then let the defense go to work. Yeah, so 
a uh, I mean, that's about as comfortable as a week one game gets for Auburn. So, right. And then uh, now they're now their prize is Georgia. Yeah, but we'll uh, we'll talk about that. Uh, who who's your last winner? It's the Pac-12. Not only are they back, but the Big 12 looks so bad right now that I think the Pac-12 will steal a playoff spot at this rate. All right. Well, I'm glad you brought up both those points because, first of all, no one is more surprised than me that the Pac-12 is back. Agreed. Um, Seven-game schedule. So without anything happening, we are already getting into the hypothetical debates of undefeated Pac-12, undefeated Big 10 versus, like, one-loss SEC. Um, But, yeah. Not an encouraging week again for the Big 12. So I don't know. I like if if we are to indulge ourselves in this hypothetical debate, I would I would lean towards you know Clemson, Ohio State, SEC team, and then you know whoever's undefeated of the Pac-12 or Big 12. Well, no, I was going to say the team who makes it out alive between UCF or Cincinnati. That's also true. I mean. Like, if if Oregon goes undefeated, though, yeah. Well, I like we we can. Uh, this is this is the trouble. That, come, but yeah. Expand the damn playoff for a year. Everyone's doing it. Yeah, MLB did it. Um, NHL, we got to see the Hawks in there, even though they had no business being there. Um, Hawks, play, Hawks. Won a series. Not only did they play, they won. Yeah, they won a series. Credit. Um, yeah, I mean, always down for expanding the playoff if we. Uh, you get pandemic rules like on the fly too, as is the um, right. Any anything involving the NCAA, I know they're not the ones in charge of it, but um, you get the point. Um, but yeah, it's it's good news for the Pac-12. Mac coming back too. So after they're all said and done, all the uh, all the FBS schools are are going to be playing some football in some capacity in the fall and. Uh, that is not something I think anybody expected just a few short weeks ago. Um, yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the, the big loser out of all this is just general player rights in the Pac-12 is that has Correct. completely been swept under the rug. But Surprise. Yeah. Never saw that coming. Who could have seen that coming? Um, some Pac- or not Pac-12, some Big 12 losers again. Pac-12 losers will be coming once they actually start playing football. But Oklahoma. Yeah. Woof. Blowing a 21-point lead to lose to Kansas State. Um, not not good for what has been the standard bear for the Big 12. No, they're done. That's it. Oklahoma can pack up. They might, not, might as well not even play the rest of the year because they're not going to the playoff. I don't care what happens. They're not a playoff team. You can't lose to Kansas State and be in the playoff. It's Except as simple as that. Yeah. I mean, that last year's different, though. <laughs> it is a whole different ballgame, like we said. Um, Spencer Radler looked decent. He, if you include the interceptions, he did not throw an incomplete pass in the first half. He completed, I think he was like 15 of 17. Uh, the two, air quote, incompletions were interceptions. One of them was a terrible throw. The other one was off the defender, or off his receiver's hands. Defense still stinks. I don't know when Oklahoma is going to figure it out, but you need to find a defense at some point. And uh, while Spencer Radler is capable of being a playmaker, he is not quite at the level 
of, and this is an unfair, but has to be the comparison. He's not at the level of a Baker Mayfield or a Kyler Murray. And that was the big question coming into the year with Lincoln Riley. Like he has done such a great job to start his career, um, pretty much as great a start as any coach in college football history. But at the same time, you've also had Baker Mayfield, Kyler Murray, Jalen Hurts, Spencer Rattler, while extremely talented, is more of an unknown compared to those guys. Um, and, you know, this is kind of something that could happen. You would have hoped, if you're an Oklahoma fan, that it comes against a team that is better than Kansas State, who right. came into this winless with a loss to perennial power, Arkansas State. So not great if you're Oklahoma. Like, Skylar Thompson played extremely well, three rushing touchdowns. Um, move the ball effectively through the air, um, which not always Kansas State's MO, but yeah, Oklahoma's defense, a lot of questions. A lot of questions. Good week for college kickers, though. Huge week, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I, in general, I just had the Big 12 as a loser. While the Pac-12 was a winner, the Big 12 was a loser. Like, Texas needed a 15-point comeback in the last two minutes, and then an overtime uh, score to see out Texas Tech, who gave up no close to a thousand yards to Houston Baptist in a narrow victory. Uh, I don't think Texas is going anywhere. Oklahoma state is only as good as they are healthy and it's their league to lose now. In my opinion, I don't think Texas is anywhere near as good as Oklahoma state. Like Oklahoma state has not looked particularly good through the first couple weeks. Like Tulsa was very, very shaky. Um, I think they, right of the ship as, as much as any team in the Big 12 can um, against West Virginia. That was certainly the, the best performance, I think, out of just about anybody in the conference this week. Like, Texas does not get credit for going to overtime and beating Texas Tech. If you're Texas Tech, like, you had that game in the bag. You found a way to blow a 15-point lead in the final three minutes of regulation. Um, like, it's not much I can say there. Like there, there's yeah. no defense being played in the conference, which is just an evergreen statement. But still, like, pretend, like, make one defensive play every week. That reporter that asked Cliff Kingsbury about, you know, there are this many high schools in Texas, and that that means there are probably this many seniors in high school in the state of Texas playing football. Why can't we find 11 to play defense? Like just continue to ask that question, no matter who the coach is of Texas tech, because it's getting to a point where you can't like, it, it just doesn't make sense. It's incomprehensible that they could still continue to be this bad. I don't know. I don't have the answer for you. It is certainly a mystery and you know, the, the opportunity is there, you know, if Dave Aranda eventually builds something like that at Baylor, defense first, market inefficiency. I don't know, but we are, we're still waiting for someone to do that because all the talk in the last, not so much this year, but the last couple of years of, you know, Texas being the standard bears, having a good defense that hasn't really come to fruition. Um, it, it really hasn't for anyone. And these just, it is, so easy to not blow these leads in such a short amount of time if you have anything resembling a competent defense. Oklahoma, Texas Tech do not. That's why they lost this week. Plain and simple. Like, that's, so, that's why the Big 12 is my loser because 
right now they're basically hopeful. Like you, you have to hope that Texas can somehow run the table this season, which I absolutely don't think won't ha- will happen. Um, or you need Spencer Sanders to get healthy and Oklahoma state's offense to realize they're one of the best in the country. And that also doesn't look likely at this point. So those are your two hopes to get into the playoff, in my opinion. Obviously, yeah. there's a lot of other things that are, that are left to uh, be played, but right now it looks very bad. It's early, but the Big 12 just needs to root for chaos at this point. And the good news for them is that looks like that will be the overarching theme of this season, um, mm-hmm. just general chaos. Um, I mean, back to saying now, my other loser of this week, like you're you're paying Jimbo seventy five million to beat Vanderbilt by five. Like this is the season that you're putting it all together. Um, Kellen Mond can't even throw for two hundred yards, and like this is like we said, Vanderbilt was horrible last year. They are yeah. worse this year. Would have been a great opportunity for you to start off the season with the statements, um, flexing of muscles a little bit, rather than you know winning by less than a touchdown, but here we find ourselves. I don't understand why Isaiah Spiller only gets eight carries. He had 117 yards on eight carries. What, what, uh, what's the problem here? Why, why can't he get more touches? He is one of the best running backs in the conference. Why can't he get more touches? I don't have that answer. Hopefully Jimbo does. Yeah, for his sake. Um, yeah, but... That was uh, that was it for me. Big Twelve country, which Texas A&M is technically still a part of. Yes, I uh, I also wanted to throw Florida State in there. Just keep piling on. Woof. It's uh, there's bad and then there's Florida State. Yeah. So by that metric. Like the uh, the Pac-12 is a winner at the Big 12's expense, I, I feel like I got to include Nebraska as a winner because when you look at historical college football powers yeah. falling on hard times, Florida State is uh, it's taking a lot of that attention away by just finding new depths of suckage. So there is that. Yeah, they, they really have. So sh- shout out Nebraska. Getting a win before they even play this year when they're certainly going to lose most of their games. They needed one. They needed one. They did. Uh, You're too Scott Frost. Never forget. He's always building winners. (laughs) That's true. Um, So this week, this upcoming week, in terms of ranked matchups, got two, both in the SEC. Start with the team we were just talking about, Texas A&M, going to Bama. As you said, um, Alabama – Really took the foot off the gas against Missouri. Mac Jones not even playing three quarters. Throwing for two touchdowns, 249 yards when he was on the field. Um, Najee Harris, a dominant performance of his own as we expected. Um, is, is there any way that you see Texas A&M winning this game? they play offense <laughs> like that they they have to do something if they put up the same performance they did against Vanderbilt this could be a 50 point win for Alabama so realistically I don't see A&M winning this ball game uh I don't see it even being close Texas A&M ha- did not show me anything last week to believe or to make me believe that they are capable of sticking with a team like Alabama 
The, the one worry is that Alabama did give up a couple of scores late to Missouri um, to make it look closer than it was. That said, a lot of people sitting at that point, but I think Alabama rolls at least a 20-point win. Yeah, in my mind, it would take quite a reversal of fortune for both of them from last week. Like A&M would have to play significantly better. Alabama would have to play significantly worse because you can't even look and say that like, oh, Alabama – Game one, you only played Missouri. AM played a worse opponent, and right. they did nothing with it. Um, I mean, the nice thing I can say about Missouri is that it looks like Eli Drinkwitz is, a, is going to do good things for that program. Um, they're obviously not there from the talent level yet, but that should, in theory, come. Um, and, and Bama still ran roughshod over them before they stopped caring. Um, so I just... I don't see it from a this week. I think Alabama will win comfortably. You agree. And then uh, top 10 matchup, Auburn going to Georgia. Georgia was not very impressive. Um, as we've said, really took a while to get the ball rolling against Arkansas, who has been a doormat in the SEC West for a while now. Um, but JT Daniels has been cleared. Arguably the best quarterback on their current roster, the transfer from USC. Auburn, as we said, impressive in the opener against Kentucky. Who are you liking here? I'm going to go with Auburn. You're going to be surprised, but I'm going to go with Auburn. I, I, also uh, uh, I, I think I just saw too much positives from Auburn to really, against a good opponent, no less, to really um, feel comfortable taking Georgia because – whether we get to see Stetson Bennett again, which is an all-time, excuse me, all-time SEC name, or if we get JT Daniels, who did some things last year at USC. Um, I don't know who we're going to see. Whoever it is, I still don't think is going to be good enough to score enough on this Auburn defense. And I just like what I saw from Bo Nix. If he can keep it up again in week two, Auburn is a legitimate playoff contender. Yeah, I went with Auburn as well. And I realize now that as we're recording this, I'm wearing a Georgia shirt, um, which you can barely see on camera. But yeah. that's, that's for a different reason, um, which we'll get to. But I, yeah, it was, it was the least impressive 27-point win I think you could really have in week one for Georgia. Um, right. The, the offense is fairly uninspiring so far. The defense is very, very good. That's yeah. The, that Georgia is going to lean on this year. Um, but I agree with you completely. Auburn was more impressive, um, played a better game against a better opponent. And home field in the SEC will not loom quite as large as it would in a typical year. Um, I, I think if it's normal circumstances, Auburn being a road team here would be huge. Um, yeah. But I don't think it's, it's quite as big a home field advantage as – it would be if it was full stadiums everywhere. So I'm going to agree with you. You know, Auburn could be a potentially big week for SEC teams from the state of Alabama. It could be. But we'll see. Check back next week to, uh, to see how those predictions went for us. Um, and check out the spread option. <laughs> we'll see where we go yes. gambling-wise. Oh, oof. There, is, I mean, there are there are betting storylines galore from last week that we did not. Yeah, touch, but we will later in the week on that program. 
Um, both of us had winning weeks, so something to shout out. <laughs> Go us. Um, not not a whole lot to talk about in the world of real college basketball um, outside of bubbles are popping up left and right. Teams are dropping out of the early season tournaments, um, but only like one at a time. Like it seems right. like I keep seeing headlines and tweets about uh, tournament fields out there that are just seven teams strong at this point. Um, so those will no doubt be filled. But yeah, um, that's that's really all we have to to look forward to at this point. Yeah, Florida State dropped out of the Charleston Classic in Orlando, as it's now being called. Uh, that is what Seton Hall is in this year. It's supposed to be a strong field. I think it's. I mean, it still will be, whether or not the Knolls are there it doesn't look like they will be that sucks because they are as always under Leonard Leonard Hamilton going to be a very good basketball team uh I don't expect anything different this season but next man up I guess would have been less travel for them it really would have (laughs) but I'm sure they have reasons so um yeah but fake college basketball world Things are happening, and I just would like to preface, I, I know you have hate in your heart towards your team, but just like to lead off by saying in year three, we are getting a just, just a little taste of how the other half has lived in years <laughs> one and two, but I will say I have not ascended to the heights that you have been at um, just outside the top 25 myself now, and you have not tasted the depths that I have lived at for years one and two, so... That is my uh, that is my intro to a little perspective, and now you have the floor to sound off on your team if you would like. We're just not a good basketball team. Like plain and simple, we're not good. Um, my best offensive player, rating wise, is averaging five points a game, which is, as the kids would say, a tough scene. Uh, seven and five in the non-conference with losses to uh, some team called Georgia. Um, we lost to Illinois, we lost to Missouri, we lost to Fordham. Like we lost to Fordham. So I, I mean it is uh it's been a frustrating non-conference and I, I absolutely laid into the team a little bit in the last cycle. For the first time ever I think I have gone negative. You're just hoping it works better than it had for you. But uh you know we're we're the 43rd, I think it was, preseason in terms of roster strength. And we are currently 81st in strength of record. So very much on the outside looking in for the NCAA tournament. And I am absolutely not ready to, A, I feel like we're on pace for a losing season. B, uh, I am not prepared for missing the NCAA tournament. Four of our five losses are to ranked teams, but one of them is to Fordham. And at home, no less. We did beat Rucker, but that's expected. Yeah, that's that's old hat at this point. But I, I was going to say, it feels good to uh, to lay into the boys a little bit, doesn't it? Even in virtual world. I, it does. I, I think, like, you might be tempted to skew positive, but, but I, I don't think that, like, really games the system in any significant way. I think any any impact that the answers are having on your teams at this point is pretty – minor at best um i don't know that's that's just my two cents i've, I've been positive throughout because 
my team has been playing relatively well. Um, really, the first minor roadblock this last cycle. My only three losses in the non-conference were to like protected rivalries, which isn't great for general team morale, but our most important rivalry, we got the win in that was over Seton Hall. Um, so I will, I will take that gladly any day. Congratulations. Um, <laughs> lost to Tulane in the season opener, which is a tournament, got revenge over them um, in a blowout in the last cycle. Lost to Georgia Tech, lost to Clemson. Um, but I will readily admit, it, those games mean more primarily to Georgia Tech. That game means more to them than it does to our program. We have, we have higher aspirations. Love it. So I'll just leave that at that. Um, two recruits through two cycles, filling uh, two holes on my roster. But yeah, um, Louisville picked off a guy that actually would have made me a good basketball team next year. So I had to go down the rankings um, to, to sign DJ Helms, who is a defense first center. Um, so it seems like I am committed to this style of play for years to come. I fully regret doing anything in regards to player development this year, because I have been getting absolutely murdered on the recruiting trail. Um, I, I wasn't even competitive for the kid from Trenton. I can't even remember his name because it'll just make me sad at this point. Desmond something. Uh, I had three guys in the top 100 that I lost out on because other teams just came down the pecking order and were out recruiting me. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I picked up Connor Omasanya, who's a small forward from Brooklyn. No, like the 172nd recruit. Not ideal. Um, he will slot in at small forward, which is a position of need. And then I need a, I need a big man. I need a power forward now. Desmond Wright was the guy from Trenton that I really wanted. And UConn came out of nowhere and took him. Yeah, I see. Uh, looks like Adam French is going to be your guy. Power forward from Philly. 46 overall. But I was going to say, um, UConn with two five stars – which when, when is the investigation going to be launched? I feel like the whole Northeast is dropping bags. Like everybody out here is going all in on the bag dropping. St. Joe's is winning like any recruit they come up against. UConn yeah. is there at all times. Providence was, uh, was coming under some, I guess, scrutiny. Providence, Rhode Island, uh, Pitt's a tough case because they're actually a good team. And I'm not like, they're very open when, they, when they've been dirty thus far. So I, I forgot what he said at the beginning of the year. But I mean, Pitt is dominating me in recruiting as well. Uh, Maryland. I think the irony is that like Rutger really didn't drop bags. Like they, I think coach said he only won at three and they were the one that got the postseason ban. Um, so it's, Love it. I don't know, like, like you're saying, like, if you're going to be good, that's a pretty big risk to go anything other than a five. Um, so I don't know if, if, um, you know, UConn or anyone else or Providence really doing anything like that. Um, they, it might just help that I'm sure UConn is higher than a three prestige. So that probably helps yeah. to some extent. Um, but 
don't know. It, it seems like general prestige is a pretty massive advantage because um, I pretty much anytime I'm going up against, you know, a, a UNC or a Duke, I'm always losing that. It seems like Michigan State always cleaning up in the Midwest. Um, but it's okay. We're, uh, we're living that prestige three life. And I know it's, uh, it's champagne problems to an extent because we are still getting like consistently top 100, top 150 players. But it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world to, uh, to taste that five-star life consistently. I know you, you had your run with Jay George. but it's, it, The thing that kills me, though, it's brutal. Like, I, this isn't a complaint. This is just a poor timing thing of now, after you know, year three, we implement the promotion to different prestiges when I probably would be a prestige two school by now, given a Sweet 16 and an NCAA tournament. I mean, but I'm still not super clear on how that works. Like, you would think that it would take into account, like, every season that we've had, no? Ideally, but I I just don't know at this point. I I don't think Eli would just start from year three. Like, that would certainly help some of us more than others. Um, yeah. So I would not, I would not be complaining. Um, it's my, I would love for them to update the uh, the all time record to reflect how season three is going. Um, it's not, no Clean things in, up for you. No reason in particular. I'd love to see that uh, that winning percentage at least go above forty uh, percent. I think that would be uh, be something wonderful. But SEC play always kills me, and as you know. I have modest goals. I only want to make the conference tournament, um, which is going to be a tall order. Um, not that my team is necessarily bad. I'm, uh, I had the fifth best non-conference out of, uh, in terms of like strength of record, 28th mm-hmm. right now. Um, just fell out of the top 25 due to going one and two in the last cycle. But I feel like I'm not going to go full Bill Moose, but I just want to say that it's interesting. Um, <laughs> there, are, there are three SEC teams um, that you have to play twice in conference play. I'm just going to note that it's interesting that two out of the three of mine are Kentucky and Florida, who happen to be ranked both in the top ten. Not a complaint, just an observation that's interesting. Um, I mean, I have to play Butler twice. Yeah. I would have loved to play Butler once. I, I mean, the Big East is full round robin, but you get my point. I do. I do. Um, they're, uh, they're or it's close to it. It's not actually 18. It's 16 games, but still. Villanova then Butler, I think, if I'm reading the rankings right. Villanova's three, Butler is, I don't know, 14, nine? 14. Yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll give you that. That seems like a legitimate complaint. Not going uh, to say it's on the same level as mine, but <laughs> our teams are not on the same level, as we found out on the court. So it's a, it's a fair complaint. I do get to Paul twice, so I guess – I mean, I shouldn't speak too soon. I don't know what DePaul's doing this year, but – they're they are comfortably well. They're six and six. Yeah, they. I mean, they have the worst team in the Big East through non-conference, which doesn't necessarily mean anything because it doesn't have any effect on the conference standings. But right, they uh, they seem to be holding on to the status quo. Um, 
I I had I had LSU twice when I was a very bad team. I would love to have them now because <laughs> every other team in the SEC is in the top hundred, really in the top ninety, and they are sitting at two hundred sixty fifth. So that would now that I say that I'm probably going to lose to them, but they would be a nice team to uh, to have both home and away this year, rather than yeah. Florida and Kentucky twice, but I'm not going to complain. After after my my rants against Nebraska, I don't want to be that guy. So, just going to point out that it's interesting. Very um, big of you. Yeah, yeah. Credit to me. Um, but if if I want to reach the mountaintop of simply participating in the SEC tournament, got to play the best. Yeah. Um, well, I will welcome the challenge. I, at this rate, I would be ecstatic to just make the Big East tournament as higher than a six seed. I don't think that's going to come to fruition, but here we are. I think we simply speak it into existence that you will be the three seed again until, until, until something else happens, which yeah. is not far. I mean, all it takes is one good cycle to start Big East play, and next thing you know, I'm the three seed. I mean, it seems like it's it's pretty open after Villanova and Butler. So, yeah, why not? like St. John's, Creighton, Creighton's beatable. I, beat I mean, we played there. significantly below our level, so we'd really have to flip a switch here. I mean, you have you have a top four offense, almost a top three, just behind St. John's. Positive vibes only right now. Yeah, this is this is a this is a positive show. We have literally every football conference back. Um, basketball is going to happen. The virtual world should, uh, should have some positive vibes as well. Agreed. Agreed. I'm going to land a big recruit next cycle. You clear, fill out your roster. We'll be good. It'll there be appointment go. television when Seton Hall and Georgia take the court. Yeah, and uh, obviously you you have fallen out of the trying to pull it up really fast, but you've fallen out of uh, fake Joe Lunardi's latest projected bracket. Um, I'm trying to find the original to compare it to, but I, I think I might honestly be in the exact same spot on the bracket. Let's check it out. Oh no, I'm, I'm in the, I'm still in the eight, nine game um, in whatever the bottom left region is, but I've moved up from a nine to an eight. So Progress. Progress. I'm, it's, it's not nothing. Also, my opponent is now Cal instead of Texas. So that seems like a better matchup for me. It sounds like it. Just based on Texas was, I can't find them. Oh, there they are. Yeah, they're still ranked 12th. So yeah, probably somebody to avoid. Um, but yeah, shout out to Green Bay. And uh, I guess... If we count Aton as a mid-major, St. Joe's is still in there. Other than that, it's uh, it's back to being a power six dominated top 25. Need to figure out a way to get back in there, though. Just a couple wins. That's all it takes. Yeah, well, again, my first two games appropriately in conference are uh, at Florida and then home against Kentucky. So it'll Here be, we go. Uh, that, that'll get you back in. It'll be starting off hot, yeah. We get two wins there, sure. Oh, actually, I misspoke. There are uh, there are four there are four teams you see twice. So 
we, we talked about the three already, um, Florida, Kentucky, and Arkansas. The fourth is Mississippi, who is currently 16th in the country. So yep. it's going to be a gauntlet. It's going to be fun. I'm, in, in, my, in my mind, Eli is in on the bit. And <laughs> thought that I had a good team this year, and he is just determined to make sure that I never reach the SEC tournament. So if so, well played. It um, is. The, uh, they still have to play the games. So they do. That's, uh, yeah. Fuck. I did not realize that until just now. <laughs> It's okay. We got uh, I should have a full roster for next year unless I might have one early departure to the uh, NBA draft, so I might try to over-recruit by a spot next cycle, but I don't know. I don't think anybody on my team is good outside of one, one junior. Yeah. So we'll see. We'll see. We're uh, we're both still alive for postseason basketball. Is how I'm going to spin this. Barely breathing, but we're alive. Yeah, uh, we are. You guys are fine. I uh, so we'll see. <laughs> see. As my it next, stands currently, my next SEC tournament will be my first. So correct. I am taking nothing for granted. Um, but yes, I feel as confident as I did preseason. So I don't know if that's a good or bad thing now that I say it out loud, but whatever. We got the win over Seton Hall, hanging a a virtual banner for that. Um, Yeah, good news in real sports. We're hoping for good news in fake sports. We will have a much better idea next time we talk. Um, Won't be the end of the regular season yet, right? We still No, I don't think so. Okay. It'll be close. It'll, I, I, will, uh, I will know whether to rejoice or despair, probably, about postseason basketball. Um, but other than that, we will uh, we'll have a lot more football to talk about, just as we did this week. We are one week closer to your Rose Bowl attending Indiana Hoosiers kicking off the season. So positive vibes there, um, and we will see you next week.